today's sermon, it's hope deferred that makes the heart sick. You know, I've been uh, preaching in Revelations. I started at Revelations 1 and 1, and I have worked my way through, all the way through all the other churches, and we're in Revelations 3, verse 1 and 2. And a couple of weeks ago, uh, I started laying a foundation for the church of Sardis. And then Wednesday night, I got into teaching about the history of Sardis and the importance of it. It helps us to understand the writing and what the, war, and what the Lord was telling John to give the letter to the church of Sardis when we understand the history of what the, where they come from and what they were doing and what they had been through and where they was going. And so today, uh, we're going to start at Revelations 3 and 1 for the church of Sardis. Let's stand to honor the reading of the word today. And unto the angel of the church of Sardis write, These things he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name that thou livest, and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found thy works perfect before the Lord. Go ahead and be reseated. Now there may be some of you, and I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but there may be some of you that's already looking at the clock and wondering, when are we going to get out of here? So, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but what I am going to do is I'm going to appoint some helpers. Okay? So, Brother Jerry, raise your hand back there. He's going to be one of my helpers. Amen? Uh, Sister Tammy, I need you to be one of my helpers. So, okay. And so what I need you to do is every once in a while, I need you to just shake your head. Shake your head and say amen. I'll know that you're getting it and I won't stop it. I'll just keep it pushing right on through and we'll get out of here sooner. Amen? Amen. But if you look like a deer in the headlights, I'm going to pause and we're going to hammer on it until everybody starts shaking their head. Amen? Amen. So it's up to you whether we get out of here at 12 or not. Amen? All right, so, but right here, the church of Sardis, you know, uh, as you go and you look at this, the church of Sardis was, uh, uh, and I encourage you to go back and look at your YouTube and, and, or listen to the podcast from last Wednesday night when it gets up. But, uh, uh, and I'm just going to basically just set a little bit of a footprint here for us. The church of Sardis was built on the side of a 1,500-foot cliff, and it protruded and jetted out over that cliff. And so it was known out of all the seven churches to have the most wealth and security of all of the others around. It was impregnable. You couldn't penetrate it. I mean, there was just no way to get there to conquer that city. But the city outgrew itself, and when it outgrew itself, the other place that it could go was down. So it went to the base of the cliff, which was a beautiful valley and had a huge river running through it. They found gold laying on the banks of the river. Woo! Just like it was in 1849 and everybody headed, what, to the west. 
for the gold rush, amen? And so it was very quickly, it was noticed for its wealth and its security. The city of Sardis was only conquered twice in all of history for thousands of years. One of them was in the 6th century B.C., so that's around 500 B.C. King Cyrus of the Persian army uh, just happened to be along and, and was studying as the, as the Persian army was, was conquering uh, all of the known world at the time and they come up to the uh, city of Sardis and as they were there, they were trying to study how that they were going to take this city. And as they were there, there was a soldier that was up on the wall, looked over, had no idea that there was a foreign army that was mounting, a, fixing to mount an attack against them. And when he looked over the walls, his helmet fell off of his head and down the 1,500 foot cliff. Well, a soldier could not go back from his post without his helmet. So there was a secret passage that led to the valley. And there was cracks and clevises. And as the Persian army and King Cyrus and all these men stepped back there, they watched this guy weave in and out of this secret passage in the crevices all the way to the valley, get his helmet, dust it off, put it back on his head, and track right back up to it. First time that Sardis was conquered was that night with a handful of men. While the rest of the army stayed down in the valley and rested. And so the second time was when Alexandria the Great, a few hundred years later, Sardis had gotten into a point to where they were relaxed and, and they were comfortable again and they had overcome the enemy and, and so uh, they were liberated from the Persian army and here they were again, the same thing. And so Alexandria the Great, a, a great military mind that, that as a young guy in his early 30s had already conquered most of the known world in a very short time, was again at the valley looking up at the Sardis, looking up at that impregnable force, a cliff, and just so happens that somebody brought him a scroll of a legend of King Cyrus and the Persian army of how he conquered Sardis. So Alexandria started studying, and he would make trips like Renaissance, and he would go out there and he would look at that cliff until he figured out in his mind exactly how that they went up and navigated and got into the city to conquer it. In a very short time, Alexander the Great was the next person that conquered the city. And that was the last time that the city was conquered. In 17 AD, the city was destroyed by an earthquake. It's not good to be on the side of a mountain in an earthquake, right? And uh, so the city was con or the city was destroyed in 17 AD. It rebuilt itself back up, but it took. They would not go to the Roman army and the Roman military, the Roman government offered because now it was under Roman control, under a Roman providence, and the Roman government offered to rebuild the city because it was underneath their tax underneath their control. And the city was so proud, they said, no, we'll use our own wealth, our own ability to build the city. And they used every bit of that to do that, and they extinguished all of their wealth. 
So by the time you get to the, uh, uh, about 90 A.D., 97 A.D., when John the Revelator was writing this, where Jesus giving this word, the city was already been 80 years or 70 years, and all of its wealth, all of its splendor, all of its glory had all been used up, and they were dying as a society. There was no more wealth. And so they were living on the reputation and they were trying to promote the reputation of the wealth and the security that they once had. And so when Jesus wrote to them and said, Thou that are dead, that everybody says in their life, I know that you're dead though. They knew exactly that Jesus was speaking to them. And see what had happened was the church was once on fire itself and it was living on the as a city, but yet the church had already went through its splendor and its glory, and it was already dead also. And living off of the reputation. You know, uh, how many members the Brownsville uh, revival, the revival in Pensacola, there was a time that when that revival was sweeping the nation, but there was also a period that when the Spirit had already moved on but yet people were still flocking and they were going, oh, this ain't real. Ain't nothing happening here. That's because that they had gotten comfortable in that revival and expecting certain things and they didn't keep their hearts softened before the Lord. And the Lord was already gone and people were coming there on the reputation that something mighty was going to happen. You know, uh, as we go through and Point out a couple of quick things is, you know, uh, there is many different levels of life that we experience. You know, uh, you have someone that is very active and, and very energetic. We say, they're full of life. This is a good time to shake your heads. All right, thank you. And so, that, so there's very many different levels of life because you have somebody that is very energetic and very lively. And so, you know, they are living life to the fullest. And then you have somebody that may be a homebody that never leaves the house and they're always just there. But by definition, they're alive and they're living life. Amen. And then they also have people that could be in the hospital, that could be, you know, on life support in a coma. But if you went in there, you would say what? That they are what? Alive. So there's very different levels of life that we see from somebody that is out there living life to its fullest to being on life support in a coma. It's all alive. You are all alive. But I'm going to tell you here, there's only one dead. There's only one level of dead. You're dead. There's no more. There's nothing else. I mean, it's just dead. You can't be almost dead because if you're almost dead, you're still alive. You're not almost dead. You're alive. But if you're dead, you're dead. It's done. Amen? But see, here's also the thing. There's only one way to be alive. And that is to have breath. As long as you have breath, no matter how you're taking that breath, you are alive. But there is also very many ways to die. Amen. 
accident. There's thousands and thousands of people that die all the time by what? By accident. Accidental death. And then there is death by murder. And then if we get into murder, there is differing various levels of murder. There's first degree murder, second degree murder. You got homicide. You got manslaughter, involuntary manslaughter. You got very different degrees of murder. And then you also have suicide. And then you have death by sickness. You know that sickness comes and death comes. And then there is death by neglect. There's people that neglect themselves and they die. You know, you may neglect your body. If, if you know that you're a diabetic and you don't take care of yourself, I promise you, you will die by neglect. It's going to happen. If you have heart disease and your arteries keep getting stopped up and you keep eating fried chicken, I promise you, you're going to die by heart attack, by neglect. That's just the way that it is. You can, you know, get into yourself and die by neglect. Yeah. If you struggle with drugs and alcohol and you don't fight and take the, the ability to break free of that, you will die by neglect. Yeah. You will die because your liver will give out. Your organs will fail. You will die by neglect. And it's a given fact. So that we see there that there's one way to live and that's with breath, but there's many ways to die. And now I want to switch gears because I want to just take this into a spiritual realm. Because all of these, a couple of weeks ago, I started tying back into a spiritual realm. But what I want to focus on today is the last two. By sickness and neglect. And so that we see that we start to take this into a spiritual realm, that we have churches all around the world that is plagued right now with death by sickness and death by neglect in the spiritual realm. You know, uh, and I'm not just talking about churches individually. I'm talking about we are the church, church, right? We are the church. And so there you look at people on a whole in this nation, and I believe that we are living in the last days. In fact, the last days there in Greek where Paul was telling Timothy the last of the last days, he said that we live in perilous times. Amen. Them last days. And that word last right there is eschatos. And that's where in the Greek, and that's where we get the word for eschatology in the English, which means the study of the last things. And so I believe, church, that we are in the last of the last of the last days. We are at the eschatos days. We're at the end of time in our lives. And And so what's going to cause the falling away? Well, you can find that the, the spiritual death in all these ways, there's probably going to be some accidental spiritual death. Somebody accidentally says something, somebody accidentally hears it, and it's going to cause them to fall away. There's going to be some murder amongst the kingdom of God. Somebody backbiting or talking or something like that and it breaks somebody's heart because they trusted and believed in them and the enemy just lined up a perfect premeditated murder in the 
spirit realm until it happens. And then there's death by suicide where we just take out ourselves spiritually out of the fight. But I believe the greatest assault that's going to come and is coming on the kingdom of God is spiritual sickness and then spiritual neglect in our lives. Proverbs 13 and 12, it says, Hope deferred maketh the heart sick. You know, the enemy's number one tool in our lives is to make us feel like that hope will never come. We know that Jesus Christ is alive and well on the throne, and we know that he's more than able to come and work and heal and deliver us in our lives, but yet we cannot see it or anticipate it in our lives anymore. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. That word deferred is mashech, and it means in the Hebrew to drag out, to draw out, to prolong or postpone. I'm telling you, the enemy is, I'm telling you somebody, I'm speaking to somebody today, the enemy is coming to your life, and he has told you that there is no hope in your life, and yet you know differently, but yet when you look, it looks too far out. It looks too impossible. It looks too to overcome. And the word there, sick, is shalah in the Hebrew. And it means to become weak or to become sick or diseased or grieved or sorrow. And I'm going to tell you what the enemy has done is he's made sickness and disease and heartache and sorrow so prominent in your life that you can't see the hope that is in front of you. Hope deferred in your life will make your heart sick. It will make you long for a better day, but believe it's never going to come. Church, it's time that the Word of God says if we will turn our eyes to the Jesus Christ and we will draw nigh to Him, He will draw nigh to us. If we need our hope nearest today, we need to get up and start drawing near to the hope of God because that's our only hope that we have. I tell you, out of all the years of serving God and being in ministering and pastoring, I see all the time to where I know that people, I, you know, some of you I have visited with. Some of you, you can't, you can't lie to me. I've talked to you. I know you. Now, I'm not going to point you out. I'm going to preach around you, but here's the thing. You cannot sit on a church pew service after service after service and expect God to supernaturally, just like a Star Trek, zap you to the altar. And if he doesn't zap you to the altar, then it just wasn't my day to get healed. I'm going to tell you, you got to get up. you got to stand on your feet. you got to go down to an altar, an old-fashioned altar. you got to grab the horns of it yourself, and you got to say, God, I'll be talking to you again at 2 o'clock in the morning trying to talk you back down trying to pray with you and reason with you but this is our lives God this is our life church
See, the enemy, he will work in our lives by working in physical sickness. He will make us sick and to the point that our bodies wear out. And I have been with a lot of dear saints that, that their bodies were wearing out. They knew that they were wearing out. And yet somewhere they just lost the, the, the strength and the energy to live because they had fought pneumonia. And they went from pneumonia to the flu and from the flu to, to, to the stomach virus, from a stomach virus back to pneumonia. And they do this perpetually year after year, month after month after month until they give up hope. Because they know that Jesus Christ still heals, but yet the healing looks so far away like they can't make it, they can't reach it. So why even try anymore? That's Satan's job is to do that, church, but yet the hope of all glory is all around us all the time. All we have to do is by faith reach out. Amen. And it is there. He works in our hearts by grief. Satan will work in our lives. It is a natural thing to experience loss in our life. These bodies, from the day that they take their first breath, they are designed to die. This is a vehicle. That's all this is. From the time that life is created, God's whole purpose and whole plan for life is to create life in a brand new baby through the seed of a man and a woman and then draw that baby up, raise it up to be a servant to him. Somebody will love him and follow him to where that body is continuously dying and then turns and bees in eternity with him forever and ever. That is the design. That is the, the hope that we have in glory. But yet, the enemy comes through grief and loss and gets us to a place that all we can focus on in our minds is the grief and loss that we have experienced. And yet we are spiritually dying by neglect and we're not letting the hope and the glory and the love of Jesus Christ supernaturally heal us and get us past it. If you are still here and you still have breath in your life, God has a plan for you. He has a purpose for you. My favorite verse is, one of them is Ephesians 1 and 4. He said, for I knew you before the foundation of the earth. Now I'm just going to put this in HHU terms. That's Hillbilly Hill University. He said, I knew your name before I scattered the stars into the universe. And I have a good plan for you. I love you. I have compassion for you. I'm chasing after you. All you have to do is believe and trust in me. And then there is death by disease. And that's a spiritual disease. And that spiritual disease is regret. The enemy will come into our lives and work in the area of regret and it becomes so festering and so nasty that anybody that gets around us, it's like an infection and it just spews out on them. Have you ever known anybody that couldn't get out of their past? They were so sick and infected with, with disease, spiritual disease in their life that they couldn't get past their past and that they've missed the whole grace of God and the power of God to Church, today is a disease-removing day from the Spirit of God if you will reach out for His grace in your life. Amen. Romans 7, 
24 and 25. I love this because this is Paul writing to the church that is in Rome. And the book of Romans is a real book. If you start reading this and, and, and you start understanding what Paul is trying to teach them and, and trying to relay to them, we can very make it very well personal to us. But he tells them, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from this body of death? You know, uh, that word wretched is talalaya apros in the Greek. And yes, it's a mouthful. But the root meaning of that word is enduring toils. It also means to have troubles, to experience trouble after trouble after trouble like waves coming into the shore. It also means to be afflicted. So once you read all of Romans 7 and you get down here to the end, anybody that understood the Greek understood what they were reading here and the picture that Paul was portraying. See, Paul wrote, well, the New Testament was written in Koronis Greek, which is common Greek, common language. It meant to be understood forever and ever and ever in a plain understanding way. So when they see this here and they see these words, they understood that Paul was saying that, oh, wretched man, oh, man that is full of trouble and heartache and afflictions, who's going to deliver me? And I'm going to tell you, the answer is right below it. In verse 25, he said, thank God through Jesus Christ, our Lord, Jesus Christ is the delivering power for all of our struggles, for better than some of y'all acting. So I'm going to say, you know, you've got about 10 more minutes. You better start shaking that head. <laughs> Titus 1 and 2. In the hope of eternal life. Now I have taught some of you how to read the Word of God. Some of you know my testimony. I couldn't read or write when I got out of high school. I was illiterate. Went all the way through high school. I had dyslexia and I went into special ed classes and, and they would kind of pacify me along, you know. And, but I caused so much trouble in school so they were going to graduate me no matter what. <laughs> and so that the Lord has had to go back and show me a lot of things because I never took an English class in high school or in junior high. But I started to dig in and started to really want a relationship with Jesus Christ. And so the Lord started showing me and I started anything that I could find. And I didn't read my first book until I was in my mid-30s. When God started drawing me in and, and I started getting curious and I started really digging in. And I found out, and some of you may know this, and you know, don't, don't shake your head like, oh gosh, that's... 
just humor me and just act surprised like you didn't know it like I did, okay? <laughs> Make me feel better. <laughs> so, but it, here's how you read the King James. Every time there is a comma, what they've done was the writers, when they were interpreting, when they were translating the Word of God out of whatever language, whether it was in the Old Testament, uh, Hebrew or Arabic, or in the New Testament, it was Greek, when they were translating it, the Greek language or the Arabic language or the Hebrew language was so uh, complex in its mechanics, there would be no clear way to just accurately interpret it or translate it. So what they would do is they would put a comma. Now, we know when you have a comma there, we stop to take a breath. But in the writing and in the translation of the Bible, when there is comma, it means to stop, collect all of your thoughts, think about what was just said before you move on to the next word that is in there. To be able to draw a full conclusion to what is being said. And if you want to know why the word ain't God ain't speaking to you, maybe you're not stopping long enough to let the word of God minister to you when it needs to be ministering to you. Amen. All right, I thank y'all for, for nodding your head and making me feel better on that. But we see here the hope of eternal life, comma. Think about what our hope is. Think about who our hope is. Think about all of our hope that the enemy is trying to defer in your life. And then we can go and we can move on. Which God, comma, to stop again. Which God, now we got to think. Which God, he's just saying God is the answer to your eternal life. Whatever you're struggling with today, God is the answer. Jesus Christ is the answer. And then it says right here again, they cannot lie, comma again. So he's making a point that if you're struggling in your life today, if there's hardship, if there's trouble that you're facing, then I guarantee you, God is in control and he cannot lie. The anticipate or expect the enemy has got you deferring your hope not expecting God to come through for you anymore 
It's time, church, that we live out our last days on this earth as mighty warriors that God has intended us to be. Do you realize that you're the hands and feet of Christ? That nothing gets done on this earth if we do not say it or we do not do it. Hell is engulfing by the moment. It's getting larger because we can't get past our own hope that's been deferred in our life. The enemy has taken you out of the battlefield by a little bit of tragedy in your life, by a few struggles in your life. I'm going to tell you, it's time that we gird up with the whole armor of God and we get on the battlefield and we become the witnesses and the light and become the hope of all glory that people can see. Wrapping this up, somebody do this. Throw out that anchor. We'll bring this ship to sail. First Timothy two and eight. I will therefore that man pray everywhere, comma. <laughs> yeah, the man pray everywhere. I've had some people. They see me in Walmarts and they call me the day before. I called and checked on them and they said, oh, I wasn't there Sunday because I was sick. And, oh, yeah, I've been praying for you. And then I see them in Walmarts on Monday and I cannot chase them down because they know that I'm going to pray for them in Walmarts. You know, God has given me some wisdom. I can about outsmart them. I know how to go down a couple of aisles and then cut back on the other side and then they'll turn right into me. <laughs> Praise you, Jesus. But he does. The answer is that God wills for us to pray everywhere. Everywhere. We are to constantly be in prayer in our lives. Constantly lifting up, lifting up spiritual hymns and songs unto the Lord. I'm going to tell you, you know what a good medicine for hopelessness is? You know what a good medicine for hope deferred is? It's praise. You know, there's been days I get in my prayer closet and I start praying and I'm praying out of obligation. I'm praying out of the flesh, but I'm praying out of discipline. And before it's over, the hope of all glory falls upon me and the to encourage me. Yes, as Christians, we have to do things in the flesh and that's like pray sometimes because your flesh does not like to pray. Sometimes we have to do things in the flesh. We have to praise the Lord. We have to raise up our hands in the flesh. Somebody tell me, well, I think they were in the flesh. It was like a praise God. They started then. Because you ain't going to just supernaturally zap into the spirit without going through the flesh and crucifying it first. Think about that. How many of you have come off of work or had a bad day or your kids acted up on the way to church and you were definitely in your flesh when you walked in the door. But things didn't get better until you raised your hands and you started praying and you started giving some glory to the Lord. And before you know it, the spirit broke out and it was a Holy Ghost revival. I'm going to tell you, church, we need to start working and doing some things in the flesh to be able to get in the spirit because I'm going to tell you, you have to draw nigh to him before he will draw nigh to you. 
Last point. And yes, I am finishing. It's just a couple minutes after 12. We're right here at this pinnacle time. I can take this further and you can just go ahead and miss the crowd at Kentucky Fried Chicken and just be first in line. Or we can dismiss here in a few minutes and you'll have a line to wait in. So, but anyway, think about that. Chew on it. You know, the children of Israel, after Moses died, they were sitting on the other side of the Jordan in the middle of ashes, mourning their great loss of their leader. And the Lord come, and I'm going to paraphrase some of this again, HHU interpretation. The Lord spoke to Joshua and said, Get up, dust yourself off. Moses is dead, and he ain't coming back. It's time to move on. And that is exactly what Joshua done. He got all the spiritual leaders, all the priests, and yet the banks of the Jordan River was overflowing, and it looked scary. It looked absolutely scary. But when they started praising the Lord and they started marching towards the river, nothing changed until they put their toes in the edge of the banks of the overflowing Jordan River. And as soon as their feet hit the water, the water split and the children of Israel walked across on dry ground. And now the reason that God done that was to remind them that they are victorious. There has been some things in your life that God has Control, church, because there are some Jericho walls that he's wanting to knock down this morning. But as long as you're up marching around the walls of Jericho, I promise you there will be hope that is coming from the glory of God to tear them down if you will be willing to march for Jesus today. You have two choices. We can pretend like we're good saints and good Christians and we have this thing all under control. Or we can be truthful and say, Jesus, I need help. The enemy has worked in my life and has deferred my hope and I need you in my life to knock down some walls before I leave. Let's stand.